Good afternoon and welcome to We Rise here on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, occupied Ohlone territory known as Huchin. I'm your host Kat Petru and this is We Rise. On today's show, I bring you a rebroadcast from Full Circle's Friday night episode called Right to Resist, the Great March of Return and Palestinian Liberation. On the show, you'll hear me speak with three young Palestinian women about fighting for their freedom and the freedom of their loved ones. Without further ado, we rise. Full circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. The show is written, produced, and is broadcasting from Huchin, Ohlone territory known to settlers as the Bay Area. In January, members of the Palestinian Youth Movement joined me on Full Circle to discuss the history of colonization and occupation of Palestine by the settler state of Israel. Tonight, as Israeli attacks persist against Palestinians marching for the right to return to their homeland, PYM's Nadia Tanous and Rama Awad join me to discuss 17-year-old Palestinian political prisoner Ahed Tamimi and the latest in her case and its implications for young political prisoners. Then we will get an update from writer Rawan Yagi on the ground in Gaza. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have for our guests about Palestinian liberation? All that tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Kat Petru. Stay with us. Welcome again to Full Circle. I'm your host, Kat Petru. The voices you just heard reverberated outside the federal building in downtown Oakland on a warm January 31st evening, the 17th birthday of Palestinian political prisoner Ahed Tamimi. Ahed was incarcerated for slapping an Israeli soldier in the face. The thing is, he slapped her first and shot her 14-year-old cousin with a steel-coated rubber bullet while other soldiers fired tear gas into her family's home. For more on Ahed's case and the circumstances of child, pa- pol- child 
Palestinian political prisoners, I spoke that night with Nadia Tanous and Rama Awad of the Palestinian Youth Movement, an international network of young Palestinians dedicated to liberating their people and their land. This is Kat Petru coming to you live from downtown Oakland on Wednesday, January 31st, which is ahead to Mimi's 17th birthday. And I'm sitting here with Rama Awad and Nadia Tannous, organizers with the Palestinian Youth Movement. Can you, one of you or both of you, just give a brief introduction to listeners about what we're doing here today? Sure. Thank you, Kat. Um, today is Ahad Damimi's 17th birthday. She's currently sitting in an Israeli military prison. And we're here sitting on, in front of the Oakland Federal Building in order to continue uh, to amplify her very strong voice from behind prison walls here to California, to Northern California, and to speak to all of the folks down here in downtown Oakland and let them know that this is a particular case. It's by no means unique. And in fact, it represents uh, the larger cross-rural state, the Israeli cross-rural state, and to be mindful of the fact that here in Northern California, we're also speaking from a cross-rural state. Can I ask how old both of you are? I'm 22. And I'm 26. And I'm 30. And as young women, and you two as Palestinians living over here, in addition to being highly political, it's a really emotional gathering, yeah? Yeah, I mean, the fact that I had this really young and that she's been forced into adulthood very prematurely as a child growing up in Nebi Saleh. She is dealing with armed soldiers on a near, nearly daily basis. She's dealing with soldiers who come into her home at very odd hours. She's dealing with protests, with tear gas. The fact that that's been her reality since she's been a child is really difficult reality. And I think that it's really important that we understand her in this context of like, she is 17 years old and, and in a lot of ways her childhood has been taken from her. And that's very heartbreaking on a very like humane level. Why did you choose the federal building to gather for this part of the protest? I think particularly in this age of Trump, which is a continuation of uh, the United States as a colonial and oppressive entity, it's very obvious that 145 is very supportive of the state of Israel, of Netanyahu, of the Israeli forces, and particularly in the Jerusalem bid, as we uh, last saw, and in the impending move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv, which is also occupied land, to Jerusalem, another place of occupied land in Palestine. It's making that connection that these different states that are inherently oppressive and how they were formed and how they continue to be and how they are structured around us work together. They collaborate. And so as us uh, here in the United States, uh, Palestinian or not, we are showing up to show that we have resilience. We connect our resilience and we struggle together. Yeah, this movement seems from the get-go to have been founded by solidarity, and that makes it even stronger. So you mentioned that Ahed's case is, is not unusual. Can you give some more context or talk more broadly about Palestinian political prisoners? Yeah, so Ahed is one of nearly 400 or 500 minors, children, who have been detained by the state of Israel. And this is not new. Israel, since its inception, especially since the occupation, since 67 has made it an ongoing practice to raid homes and arrest people and they target youth specifically these are youth who may be engaged in a protest maybe through some rocks um, 
maybe their families are involved. Maybe it's a form of collective punishment to get at a relative who is more politically active. But it is part of an ongoing process of targeting children. And so there are nearly yeah, 400 to 500 children taken as um, essentially prisoners of war. They are political prisoners. They are not guilty of anything but being children, being Palestinian, and, and in some cases being uh, resilient in the face of that violence like Ahed. Ahed is one of many, but I think Ahed also represents um, a unique case in that she was already in a lot of ways part of this international community and had a lot of like attention around her because of Nabi Saleh, because they are so persistent in their weekly demonstrations. And so she already had in a lot of ways this international network. And I think it's a really yeah, moving case, but she's one of many children currently sitting in Israeli detention. And when Rama says 400 to 500, she means every year. So this is a yearly, the yearly case of these children. And in particular, I think it's important to note that under uh, the military court in uh, Israel, actually Ahed is not considered a child because after the age of 15 and a half, they are actually transferred from juvenile detention to adulthood in the face of the court. And so when she was arrested, she actually is an adult because she's technically a military combatant because she's Palestinian. And there is no civil court available for Palestinians, period, children or otherwise, living in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. There is a civil court for Jewish kids who are 16, 17. But for Ahed, there is no civil court available. And so what that means is that uh, she is going before a military judge. She is going in the form of without a jury. And so she's actually going through the same court as her mother, who is an adult and who has gone to prison many times before and she as her as her aunts as have almost every woman in the Tamimi family and so I think it's important to note that while yes she is a child uh, she actually is viewed as an adult and is treated as a full-grown woman uh, under the state and more importantly as a military combatant. Why are they targeting children? Why is the Israeli army and government soldiers targeting children? Do you have any idea? Just like what Rama spoke to, it's a form of collective punishment. If you are an adult and you uh, make the decision to stand up against the state and the systems of oppression that are coming for your water, your land, your livelihoods, and your family every day, you will be oppressed, you will be suppressed, you will be incarcerated, you will have your job permit denied, you will uh, have different forms of livelihood uh, taken away from you. Now, if you commute that to the case of your children going through similar processes of being uh, barred from entering school, when they are incarcerated, they are not allowed to study, they cannot study, they cannot take their exams, which means that if they are incarcerated repeatedly, as most children are, they are unable to finish school and unable to finish their coursework. Um, I think the larger answer here lies in going after the Fabric, the very fabric of uh, Palestinian society and in sending a very clear message by the Israeli state that if you stand up, if your children stand up, if you are resilient, if you resist against the occupation against apartheid, we will punish you. We will punish you indefinitely in every form that you can think of. That is uh, why the state is going after children in particular, to send a message to the society, the villages, and the families themselves. Yeah, to send a message, and also if we think about any oppressed or colonized people, the children are the future. This is the future generation of Palestine, and if, as a colonial power, if you're looking to 
repressive people, you start with the youth because they will be the ones to carry right. to carry the struggle forward. It's a war crime in many ways. It's a tactic of genocide. It's a tactic of ethnic cleansing. It's a tactic of um, colonizing the mind, the body, the spirit. I mean, I think to the state, to, to Israel, we're not, Palestinians are not seen as people, we're not seen as citizens. That's why we're tried in military court. That's why they treat us as dispensable. That's why they go after our children. We're seen as external threats to this entity, to this colonial entity. And it, what's also astonishing is how few people actually know the truth of what's going on. If people knew there would be much greater public outcry. Is there anything either of you would want to say to Ahed should she ever hear this? on her 17th birthday, coming from Oakland all the way over to Nabisale. I would say to Ahed, hi Ahed, uh, it's Nadia. <laughs> I hope you're well. Um, haven't heard your voice in a while. And I, um, you're very strong. You uh, make your family so proud. You continue the legacy for uh, all of us particularly Palestinian women who are living in the Shatat and the diaspora who can't go home. We look to you. You teach us so much um, just by being who you are. And uh, we'll fight for your liberation and to be free. And on your next birthday, inshallah, uh, we will come to a liberated Palestine and celebrate. Uh, inshallah, Habibti. Is there anything else either of you would like to add? Yeah, I think that with the news cycles and how quickly people kind of move on from topic to topic, I think it's really important that we keep the pressure on Ahed because it's very easy for people to just forget. And I think we cannot forget Ahed. We cannot forget that she's sitting in detention and it could be indefinite, right? So it's really important that we keep the pressure because there's not many ways that we can affect what's happening. And so... The least we can do is continue talking about her, collecting at rallies, and like keep the pressure in terms of media. Thank you, Kat. Yeah, thanks, Kat. Thank you both so much. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Kat Petru, and you just heard my conversation with Nadia Tanus and Rama Awad of the Palestinian Youth Movement speaking with me on January 31st when we gathered in front of the federal building in downtown Oakland on Palestinian political prisoner Ahed Tamimi's 17th birthday to demand her freedom. Nadia and Rama join me live in studio tonight to discuss updates in Ahed's case and the state of young political prisoners in Palestine. Later on, we'll discuss the great march of return going on right now in Gaza. Thank you both so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Kat. Thanks, Kat. It's an honor to have you. So on March 22nd, Ahed's case reached a verdict of eight months in jail and a $1,500 fine. Ahed had to plead guilty to four out of 12 charges initially brought against her. According to an Israeli army statement, she pled guilty to attacking two Israeli army officials and two additional criminal acts where she, quote, disrupted an Israeli soldier and, quote, carried out incitement. 
Tried behind closed doors, Ahed Tamimi's lawyer, Gabby Lasky, said, We understood that Ahed was not going to receive a fair trial. A plea bargain is the best option that Palestinians can get in the military courts. Sahar Francis, director of Palestinian prisoners' rights group Adamir, says most cases in, Israeli, in Israel's military courts result in a plea bargain and that confessions are taken following torture, ill treatment, and coercion. Palestinians face an almost 100% conviction rate in Israel's military courts. According to Defense for Children International, Palestine, out of 297 cases that were closed by the group's lawyers between 2012 and 2015, 295 resulted in a plea bargain. Ahed herself addressed the courtroom, saying there is no justice under the occupation and this court is illegal. Nadia and Rama, when we rallied on January 31st, this was clearly not the verdict we were hoping for. Can you elaborate on the obstacles Palestinian political prisoners face in Israeli military courts? Yeah, um, thank you again, Kat, for having us. So I think it's really important to begin by dissecting this idea of Palestinian political prisoner and in Israeli military courts, so sort of to say the answer is in part the question. Um, these are people who aren't necessarily charged with a crime. Um, their only crime is for resisting. Um, their crime is for insisting that they are Palestinian with national and human rights. Um, and second, they're being um, charged in military courts as civilians. So I think those are re really important um, aspects to keep in mind in this conversation. Um, so a few obstacles. Um, Palestinian political prisoners oftentimes are held or detained in um, prisons um, in Israel proper. So this poses a lot of difficulties um, in terms of access to their lawyers. Um, this causes a lot of issues when they just want to see their families um, who then need permits to travel into Israel proper from the West Bank, for example. Um, you touched on this a bit, but in prisons, um, they face abuse, torture at the hands of Israeli soldiers. Um, in Israel, there is a policy called administrative detention, um, where anywhere else in the world, this is most likely illegal, um, where they can be held indefinitely without a trial. Um, lastly, you also touched upon this, but 99% of um, Palestinians tried in military courts are um, found guilty. So that's a near 100% conviction rate. Um, and like I had said, um, there is no justice under occupation. Um, how can justice be served by an occup occupying power to its occupied people? Yeah. Do you want to add anything, Nadia? I think just that there are, um, you know, a lot of ways in which these policies that Rama was touching on, particularly the practice of holding Palestinians in prisons that are outside of a jurisdiction where their families can actually travel, um, is, you know, just a really good example of the way that uh, Israel uses these very kind of arbitrary uh, law or arbitrary moves to uh, implement like strong laws. So if you have uh, a permit for the West Bank and you're only 
allowed as an identity, as ID card holder in the West Bank to move around the West Bank. It's very often that they will hold your loved one in Jerusalem. They'll hold your loved one in Petatikva. They'll hold your loved one um, in a place where you can't go. You can't visit them, even though your loved one has the right to see you. Right. Further, further using this like psychological, psycho-emotional warfare. Yeah. So we know, I mean, she's 17, Ahed, um, but technically she's a minor and she's a student being held in an adult prison. So specifically, what are challenges that youth face in this context? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, for us and the Palestinian and and a lot of... um, Univers- or like before university exams in the Middle East it's called Tajihi, you are expected to be able to complete your coursework and show your understanding of multiple um, subjects before you turn 17, basically. So from 15 to 17 to 18. And that Tajihi score basically you know, confirms where you can go to school, what you can study. It's a really big deal. And so when these youth are taken, I mean, whether they're put in juvenile military court or adult military court and into adult prison, they're not able to access any resources to study uh, for these exams. They miss months and months of classes, so they can't complete their coursework. Um, And so when they're actually released, whether that be, you know, an Ahed's case after eight months or maybe even after years, they are in no way uh, lined up to even uh, take these exams. And so what you have in a population like ours, I mean, Palestinians, we have a, a long, long history of, in, of education. You know, in 1970s, when we had the occupation of the West Bank of Gaza and the ramping up of the militarization of both spaces, we held just as many PhDs as Israelis. Um, and we had access to very little. So what you're seeing, just like what I said in the previous interview, is this um, disintegration of our basic cultural fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is uh, another case like Omar Kiswani, who was the president of the university student body in Berzeit. I mean, he just ended a 14-day hunger strike because he's there advocating for his rights to study, his rights to freedom, his rights to a trial, and they have yet to give it to him. And he's held in Moscovia, which is in Jerusalem. So his family is, again, in the West Bank. They can't go visit him. If you want to hear, you listeners want to hear more about Palestinian political prisoners, young prisoners, please um, call us when we ask for call-ins. At the moment, we're going to turn our attention to Gaza, where one week ago today, Israeli soldiers opened fire on thousands of Palestinians participating in the six-week-long march for their right to return. The massacre erupted near the Gaza Strip's eastern border with Israel, killing at least 18 Palestinians and wounding as many as 1,700 others. For more, I spoke with Gaza-based writer Rawan Yagi, whose New York Times article published earlier this week was called Gaza Screams for Life. Good morning from Oakland, or occupied Huchin, Ohlone territory. I'm Kat Petru, and I'm speaking with Rawan Yagi, who is in Gaza right now, and where exactly are you in Gaza? I'm in uh, Gaza City. How are you doing at this moment? I'm doing okay. Um, It's a bit difficult trying to stay focused, trying to live um, normally while something like this is happening. You know that a lot of people are, are getting hurt and 
you know, that it's not a normal situation. Not that anything in Gaza is normal, but it's a time where events intensify and where people's feelings intensify as well. And it's infectious, especially in a place like Gaza. It's really small, it's very crowded. And if the general atmosphere is that of agitation, then you'll get infected. And if the general atmosphere is depression, you'll get infected as well. So yeah, right now I feel a lot of uh, feelings, actually. I feel a lot of worry uh, about what's coming. I feel a lot of um, anxiousness, but I also feel hopeful because I feel like there's a movement growing uh, among the young generation in Gaza. Uh, And that is the movement of refusing to keep silence and refusing to rely on other political entities to represent us or to represent our voices. So yeah, trying to remember that when I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling anxious helps. Yeah. I know we spoke briefly um, what was last night in, in California and this morning for you in Gaza. And you were trying to decide whether to go march or to stay home and your parents were worried for your life. Not everyone has that experience. Is there anything you want to say about that? Yes, definitely. What I uh, experienced this morning gave me another perspective about my life in Gaza. And that is that I have to make choices that most other people around the world don't have to make but a lot of other people around the world do have to make we've heard about so many activists who have risked their lives fighting for their causes and they've chosen not to take the safe route which is to be silent today I, I couldn't decide I, I actually got dressed and had breakfast and I was about to leave uh, but my parents stopped me and I decided not to go because they, because I could see how much fear they had and I could see how much anxiousness they had. And my mom's reaction, my mom's um, kind of please stopped me from going. So I decided to stay home uh, and watch from afar and go to the protests some other days or nights where people are not so agitated or when the other side or the the Israeli side is not so tense. Mm -hmm. Fridays tend to be the most crowded. So a lot of people go on Friday because it's our weekend. Today, especially um, young men and women have decided to burn tires so they can blind the uh, snipers. In other words, so the snipers can't target the protesters. And that just creates a whole different scenario where anything can go wrong. Not that things don't go wrong normally, like last Friday where 17 people were killed. It just adds another layer of worry or concern. 
And I have to say, I'm still convicted about whether I should have gone or not, because if everyone felt similarly, we wouldn't have a protest. Unfair isn't a strong enough word for the kind of choice being asked of Palestinians. The term martyr comes up a lot, and of course you have loved ones, and your life is just interwoven in your community and in this decade, centuries-long theft and violence. And so the weight is intense, the feelings are strong, and you know the attention that this does get in the United States, of course in the mainstream is completely lies, coming from Israel. Mm -hmm. And then in the more alternative media, even sometimes you hear more the facts, perhaps. And that's very important. And also, I want people to understand the depth of the feeling involved in what's going on. I think that's a very important uh, angle to look at, because I was actually talking to Nadia today, and um, She said something like, uh, I'm sending you a lot of love. And then she said, I wish that um, served our people. And I said, of course, that serves our people. It's the first thing that is targeted in our community because our feelings and our uh, mental states are, uh, are really important in what happens. And they can be points of strength or weakness. And every person who shows up there is making a conscious choice to be there. You mentioned amidst all of this, you find hope from young Palestinians, young people coming together and forming a movement. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yes. um, What's happening at the march is something that I haven't seen for a long time in Gaza. Gaza has been referred to when you talk about division, when you talk about poverty, when you talk about aid, etc. But the marches are not about any of these things. It's about men and women going out together and challenging all of these images that are being attributed to them. They're challenging the narrative. And I think that's, that's very hopeful because it's opening a new a new chapter in the history of Gaza and in the um, the current situation of Gaza but they're not they're not only young people which is what is nice about this march it's, it's everyone everyone who wants to express the demand of return or anything else really i have, i think two more questions in the moment one is how people on this continent might be able to support you all over there. And the other is if there's anything else you would like to share. To answer your first question, I think people in North America can just listen to their own minds and hearts, looking at the facts, looking at the stories, and listening to the voices of Palestinians. I think when they start to listen, they will know what they need to do. And that can take many shapes and many forms. But I think some of the most important things are supporting the ongoing 
efforts for BDS. Boycott divestment sanctions. Yes, and um, supporting the, the narrative that Palestinians are trying to spread around the world. And I think, like I said, once they start listening, they'll know what to do. To answer your second question, I, I don't think I have anything else to say. I feel like this was a really nice interview, and I hope that more people can start asking questions like this and asking about the, the personal side of Palestine, which is also collective because it's one struggle, and it's one that a lot of people identify with and a lot of people see themselves in. And it's not a struggle just for the Palestinians. It's a global struggle against colonialism and against injustice. So thank you for having me on your show. Thank you so much, Rowan. It was such a pleasure and an honor to hear from you today. Likewise. You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I am your host, Kat Petru, and that was my conversation with writer Rawan Yagi, speaking with me from Gaza. We'll have a link to her New York Times article, Gaza Screams for Life, on our webpage, kpfaapprentice.org. The day of the mass murders was the 42nd anniversary of Land Day, March 30th, 1976, when Palestinians led a popular uprising against Israel's confiscation of huge swaths of their land in the Galilee. This day marks the start of the Great March of Return, six weeks in total, ending on May 15th, the 70th anniversary of Al-Nakba which commemorates the expulsion in 1948 of more than 750,000 Palestinians from their homeland to make way for the colonial state of Israel. I'm speaking with um, Rama Awad and Nadia Tanous of the Palestinian Youth Movement live here in studio. And I want to ask you both, what do these anniversaries mean to each of you? Totally. Yeah, it's really, really important days. Um, Yom Al-Art or Land Day is really, um, you know, just so emblematic of how important land and how central land is to our identity as Palestinians, as rooted people. Um, We're indigenous to the land. We are from there. Um, And from there, part of this, you know, great march of return is we're returning there um, because our roots are there. We are there. Um, And, you know, Land Day also, every time I think of um, 1976 and the events that took place, I think of our, not 12, but 13 martyrs who were lynched um, by Israeli military um, in the Galilee, in the Naqab, in the south, in the Negev, and in Gaza, one in Gaza. Um, And so I think, you know, Land Day is important as a unifying uh, day for all of us in the Shatat, in the diaspora, in Palestine, and all of her parts, um, because we are holding central our Palestinian identity, and particularly for Palestinians in 48, so Palestinians living within the current state of Israel, they um, are standing up and and demanding that their identity show. They refuse to be assimilated into the state, and they refuse to disappear. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go ahead, Rama, please. Yes. Um, and the Nakba, May 15th, 1948, I think if you ask any Palestinian, um, their family was likely affected by the Nakba, whether that be a grandparent, a great uncle, um, a parent. Um, the Palestinian diaspora was produced from this Nakba. Um, and for me, 1948, 
um, personally is when my maternal grandparents were expelled from their home in Lod or Lid. Um, they fled to Ramallah where they started from scratch essentially. And um, the irony is that in place of Lid, um, there is now the airport in um, the Ben Gurion airport. And uh, ironically, um, generations later, myself as a Palestinian American, but with West Bank residency, I'm not you know, a Hawaii, I'm not allowed to travel through there. Um, and that's a whole other story altogether. Um, but for me, May 15th is a day of mourning. Um, it's a day of commemoration. Um, but more importantly, it's a reminder that the Nakba is in many ways ongoing. It's happening with each acre that's confiscated. It's happening with each child that's detained and imprisoned and really with the rest of the world kind of watching in terms of you know political leadership globally um it's a day to remember that just as prior palestinian generations organized in refugee camps we must continue organizing in the diaspora absolutely regarding the ongoing violence of israeli troops they knew Palestinians, we know that they knew Palestinians would gather, they knew why they were gathering, and they murdered innocent people and still have the audacity to blame Palestinians as the perpetrators of this violence. This is a bold-faced lie. Palestinians gathered in peace, in prayer, in celebration, even at the opportunity to come together and demand sovereignty, safety, and home. How can we take this escalated horror and mobilize even more support to free Palestine? What are PYM and its allies doing, and how can listeners be part of this resistance? Yeah, I think um, it's really important to contextualize violence. Um, what those Israeli soldiers are shooting at is the truth. They're shooting at our actual future. So I don't think they're as afraid of, um, you know, this image of terrorism that they're putting forward as what they know we're coming for, which is our land, which is our return, which is for our children to be able to play on the beaches where we're from, um, to pick olives and to be and to live where we're from, um, you know. And so, yeah, when they are uh, aiming, targeting our bodies, what they're really targeting is the truth. Um, and it's through intense settler guilt um, because they know behind all of that armor, behind the fane of a, democ a democratic state, that in fact they are built on nothing that is valid. Um, and so, you know, for us, just as Rama said in the diaspora and for folks in the international community who are standing with us in solidarity um, to raise up this issue and to talk about liberation, um, we have to get engaged because the people in Palestine are giving it all they got um and so we have to do the same we have to match it yeah um the thank answer, you nadia this is rama just for listeners mm -hmm. thanks um the answer is really sustained action um to everyone listening it's about joining an organization we're stronger coordinated we're stronger organized um and there are so many organizations doing this work locally we have the palestinian or the palestine action network pan um it's composed of many different groups including ourselves pym um and on April 14th, we'll be having an action. Um, that's um, a Saturday. And we'll be posting more information on our Facebook page. And, and all of the events, there are more. Um, we'll link to you on our website, kpfaapprentice.org. Were you going to add anything else to that? Okay. Thank you both so much for those answers. So um, let's see. 
what is next? Next, we're going to take a music break, and we want to hear from you, our listeners. Please give us a call. The phone number is 510-848-4425, 510-848-4425, or 1-800-958-9008. 1-800-958-9008. Please give us a call with your questions about the freedom and liberation of Palestine. And we will, while we wait for your calls, let's listen to this song. Listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and that was A Time to Cry by Reem Bana, Palestinian singer and songwriter who just passed away on March 24th at the age of 51 after a long battle with cancer. May she rest in peace and in power. 
here with me to answer your questions about Palestinian liberation, the Great March of Return, and and um, young Palestinian political prisoners are Rama Awad and Nadia Tanous of the Palestinian Youth Movement. Please do give us a call. Join the conversation. The phone number is 510-848-4425, 510-848-4425, or 1-800-958-9008. Please go ahead and join the conversation conversation if you would like to share um did one of you want to have a moment yeah i think we're we've been talking a lot about these different um you know the marches and um the protesters and our siblings who are demanding their right of return but also you know we um they are paying a very heavy price, not only by living under occupation and apartheid every day, as Rawan mentioned um, earlier in the segment, but also with their lives. Um, and I think, you know, it's really crucial for us to to remember and take a moment to honor the martyrs, um, the 29 martyrs who have been killed since that uh, first uh, march on the 42nd anniversary of Land Day. And there will be many more, I hate to say that, but it is um, most likely the case because um, as they continue to march until May 15th, the Israelis have been absolutely relentless as per usual. Um, and so, you know, one martyr I would like to lift up is Mohammed Abu Amr, who is um, known or was known at Irhamu for uh, making these beautiful sand art pieces um, and his friends and family members after he was killed um, actually made this big map of Palestine and all of these little villages um, in the sand and they took an aerial shot um, and so there are ways that these martyrs live on through their families um, and through also their sacrifice mm -hmm. thank you so much we actually have a caller on the line Joanne from Sonoma can you hear me Yes, I can. Thank you so much for calling and welcome to Full Circle. Thank you. You're on the air. Go ahead with your question. Well, you know, I don't have a question as much as a comment, if that's okay. Yeah, please go ahead. Well, I um, am 76 and in 2004, I read the book Blood Brothers. <laughs> and it was about a little Jewish boy and a little um, uh, um, Palestinian boy, and it was it's a, their story. They lived right next door to each other, and it's a true story, and um, tells the story when the. Um, the uh, 1948 when the UN gave the land to Israel and took so much of the land from Palestine and in what in 2008 my husband and I and a group of 30 of us went over to Palestine and we were just in disbelief of what the Israeli the Zionist Israeli government has done to the mm -hmm. uh, Palestinians. Joan, we do have other callers, so um, if you could um, conclude shortly, that would be fabulous. Okay, I just want to say we went again in 2011, and we are doing BDS, boycott, divestment. Uh, sanctions. 
sanctions, thank you, in order to see if we can um, get some movement and speaking to people and letting, to U.S. people letting them know. Thank you. uh, We need a change. Thank you so much. Roma or Nadia, did you want to speak or respond to Joanne? Keep it up. That's fantastic. Um, It's people like you and your communities who are letting the people around you and in your circle know exactly what's going on. Um, That's awesome. Awesome work. Thank you, Joanne. All right. So we have another call on the line. Um, I don't know your name. From Miami. Another call from Miami. I believe you're on the air. Yes, hello. Vanessa. Vanessa, you're on the air from Miami. Thanks for joining Full Circle. Yes. So I'd like to ask my question, and then I'll take my answer off the air. If Thank that's you. Okay. Yeah. Um, my question is, uh, is there any material either of you would recommend to learn more about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Great question. Go for it. Yeah, um, actually in Miami, there's an awesome organization called the Dream Defenders, um, and they mostly focus on police brutality of uh, black and brown folks in Miami and in Florida, but one of their co-founders is Ahmed Abuznet, and he is Palestinian, um, and the Dream Defenders have done a lot of work really connecting um, police and state brutality and state violence um, between the United States and Palestine. Um, another great uh, resource would be a book by um, Ilan Pape, I-L-A-N-P-A-P-P-E, and he's one of the Israeli New Historians, and he writes a lot about myth-busting, um, which is super important when we're coming from a place where the media has been telling us a lot of misinformation. I would definitely recommend his work. Thank you, Nadia. I want to remind listeners uh, the number to call is 510-848-4425, 510-848-4425, or 1-800-958-9008 to join the conversation. Uh, Rahman, did you want to add anything to either to that? No? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, while we're waiting for more calls, um, can we return to the conversation about youth political prisoners? I know there's a lot more to share about that. Yeah, I think, um, so just to give us an idea of the 6,100 Palestinian political prisoners who are currently in prison, there are 340 that are university students. So those are folks who are in Najah, in Nablus, or in Berzeit, uh, in the Ramallah area. Um, and these are folks whose studies are on pause formally. But, you know, what's amazing is behind bars, I mean, for years, this is this is an age-long tradition of uh, us as Palestinian political prisoners and political prisoners all around the world. Um, there's so much education that is going on by political prisoners, for political prisoners, on a variety of issues, whether that is English uh, courses in order to be able to read some of the letters and materials that are coming through, or whether, you know, there's Khalid Jarrar, who is currently in prison, and she led um, a class on international law for fellow prisoners. Yeah, and I mean, she's an amazing woman because she is one of three women who has been held in administrative detention. Um, As Rama mentioned earlier in the segment, this is administrative detention can be renewed again and again and again. And in her case, um, you know, she's being held uh, under, uh, you know, her 
crime, which is incitement due to her political activity. Um, and so of um, just her class, it was profound you know it was days and days of work and lecture work and homework and readings and discussions socratic seminars um and so that's just one example of the ways that palestinians behind bars take agency and really take uh, education seriously um and kind of create community even within such a violent context Thank you. We do have another call on the line. Do you want to add something briefly or should we jump to the call? Great. So Stan from Fresno, you are on Full Circle. Yeah, hi. Um, good evening. Uh, um, I work with the immigrants and uh, particularly the deportations. But uh, I've read a considerable amount on Palestine and I'm deeply saddened by what's happening. I just can't mm-hmm. believe it. Um, but on the other hand, um, I also am concerned because I see a parallel between the treatment of the Palestinians and what has historically happened to Latin America. For sure. And there's even a there's even a caravan of people who have been deeply traumatized and terrorized from Honduras, where there's killings. I see immigrants every day from Salvador and Honduras and from Central America and the wars that the United States perpetrated on those people to take the resources. It's the same. It's a parallel in history that's just, it's uh, it's deep and it's there. Anyway, I don't want to take up time. I just want to tell you that I see that we're both going through this experience, which it's just hard to believe. And But they're so close. They talk about walls. They talk about dehumanizing people, about killing children and targeting civilians and the same thing. And now the president wants to deploy the National Guard to the border of the United States. Same thing happened when they did it last time. And, and a young man, I believe his name was Ezequiel Hernandez, who was a, a goat herder of all things, was murdered by a National mm-hmm. Guardsman who bragged about how he shot him. Mm-hmm. But I'm just I want to tell you that my heart is with you and I hope things get better. Thank you so much, Stan, for your call and for your words. I think um, Nadia wants to respond. Yeah, thank you. I think, um, you know, the parallel holds really true, um, especially in the tactics that we're seeing between Border Patrol and uh, Israeli um, forces. I mean, everything from tactics to weaponry to um, modes of detention are all circulated in this kind of global militarization um, machine. And we see, um, you know, programs like Urban Shield, which has been held in uh, Alameda County in the Bay Area for 11 years. I mean, this was, it was actually just defunded for 2019, I believe a week and a half ago, which is an incredible win. But something that happens at Urban Shield or has been happening every year is this exchange of military tactics, this exchange of weaponry um, between international militaries, including the Israelis and U.S. police forces and U.S. Uh, you know, factions of uh, law enforcement all throughout, I mean, nationally. And so when you talk about tactics uh, being used against immigrants, I mean, ICE participated in Urban Shield. Um, And so they are absolutely trading this information. And there's something that rings true in the face of militarization, colonialism, capitalism, migration. Um, You know, we are succumbing around the world to these very, very large 
um, forces. And yet there is so much resiliency, so much resistance and so much organizing. Um, you know, I'm sure work like yours, um, all of us who are fighting for our communities, we have to keep it up even under this pressure. Yeah. And I'll just thank you, Nadia. I'll just quickly add that. Um, thank you. I mean, thank you, Stan, for for um, those comments. I think in the same way that our oppressors and these systems are connecting, we as um, the oppressed or we as the resistance need to also be working together. And I think that's just a testament to um, solidarity historically and ongoing and the need to be organizing together. Thank you both so much. Uh, do we have another call on the line? Um, we have two minutes left. So if you could make your question or comment very brief, that would be fabulous. Hello? Hi. Yes, hi, I'm here. My name is Alika, and I'm just trying to wrap it up as much as I can and make it really brief. Thank you. My question is, how do we change the conversation around immigrants and people of color in general, especially coming from friends or family members that have a very negative attitude and are not responding to statistics and have a very emotional view, and that's good tainting everything. That's a great question. We have about 30 seconds for a response. I think the real question is looking at blame. So when we're talking about harm and where your friends and family might be thinking, you know, they're getting disadvantaged from, it's this blame on immigrants, this blame on people of color, to really uh, flip the question and to make them ask uh, what the powers of the state are doing um, and have a really critical look at that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Rama, any final words? No, Nadia said it. Okay, thank you so much to Nadia Tanus and Rama Awad of the Palestinian Youth Movement for being here tonight and to Rawan Yagi who called in from Gaza. A reminder to our listeners, all the resources can be found on kpfaapprentice.org, resources from tonight's show and information. Applications for the First Voice Apprenticeship Program are open. More information on our website and KPFA has a gift for you. Um, check out the website kpfa.org for four fab amazing speeches from the late great Dr. Martin Luther King more fuel to keep up the fight for freedom for the long haul. We are at the end of the show. Um, our executive producer is Miss M. Tech director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is, Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host, Kat Petru. Thanks to Darlene on the board. Tech assistance from G43, Sharon and Steve for all of your help. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next. Thanks so much for tuning in to We Rise here on 89.3 FM KPFB. Of course, La Onda Bajita is not up next. This was a rebroadcast of KPFA's Full Circle, brought to you by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Please do apply if you're interested. Check out kpfaapprentice.org. To get in touch with me and my co-producer, you can reach us at danceisrevolutionary at gmail.com and check out mixcloud.com backslash we rise radio for our archived shows. Tune in next week for an episode of Feral Visions featuring Sockage Ward about rekindling warrior societies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a beautiful weekend.